This podcast is brought to you by Bet Rivers. Download the Bet Rivers app from the App Store or Google Play Store. Must be 21. Available in Ohio only. Void where prohibited. Terms and conditions apply. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Sports gaming is provided in partnership with Dayton Real Estate Ventures, LLC, DBA, Hollywood Gaming at Dayton Raceway. If you're a tennis fan, you'll love betting weekly game bet match on the Bet Rivers Network. Whether you're a better or just love tennis, you'll enjoy the in-depth analysis each week of the tennis calendar. Subscribe to Game Bet Match today from your favorite podcast provider. If you're a tennis fan, you'll love betting weekly game bet match on the Bet Rivers Network. Whether you're a better or just love tennis, you'll enjoy the in-depth analysis each week of the tennis calendar. Subscribe to Game Bet Match today from your favorite podcast provider. You're now listening to Boomsies with Dan O'Toole on the Bet Rivers Network. Friday, Friday, air conditioning was on. Heat is now on. It's springtime in Canada. Hi, I'm Dan O'Toole. Welcome to the weekend. Hopefully you enjoy it with friends and family. Or yourself. Maybe you're out cutting wood. You know, cutting wood is very therapeutic. If you're forced to cut wood, it's a living nightmare. But if you're doing it because you're like, okay, I got to get some uh, wood ready for the sauna or some wood ready for the, for the stove inside. Wood ready for the campfire. You feel like a... You feel like you're alive chopping that wood. And hopefully this Friday Friday will make you feel alive. It's like chopping wood for your ears. Every uh, Friday episode, we have a great guest. The trend continues this week. As we have NHL legend. And now, a part of the Seattle Kraken broadcast team, Ed Olchak. Eddie, you're, uh, you're kind of sitting as part of history right now as you're on the road in Colorado with the Kraken, getting ready for the postseason. Mm-hmm. How's it feel being a part of this? <laughs> well, Dan, it's, uh, it's been a long time. Uh, nice to talk to you and nice to see you. And thanks for... Uh... Thanks for having me. Yeah. Um, you know, like it, it, it's really been, uh, you know, an incredible first year uh, for me being a part of the Kraken television network. But um, full disclosure, uh, I kind of feel like uh, I've had some skin in the game and blood in the game here since the inception of the Seattle Kraken a couple of years ago. My middle brother, Ricky, is uh, vice president and assistant general manager for the legendary Ronnie Francis and uh, has been since from uh, from day one. So I've kind of seen the uh, the organization go from, you know, a thought to an announcement to uh, here they are two years later and uh, or I guess four years later, technically. And uh, here they are off a 40 point uh, improvement from last year. Uh, and also my oldest son is a uh, amateur scout. My oldest son, Eddie, is an amateur scout for the Kraken. And also my youngest son, Nick, uh, does uh, pre and post and does intermissions on root, on root sports out in Seattle for, for our Kraken local games. So it's, uh, 
it's kind of a family affair. So obviously there's a boatload of excitement. The city is up for grabs. And as you know, Dan, it was a long time since the Mariners made the playoffs. And yeah. They made the playoffs this last year. And the, uh, the Seahawks made the, uh, the playoffs as well. And now the Kraken have followed suit. So uh, long-winded. Everybody is very, very excited. And, you know, we're excited to bring the game back uh, back to Seattle tonight. And, you know, look at you're going up against the defending Stanley Cup champions. And, uh, you know, not many people are given a crack and a chance in this series. But it's been by committee all season long. And I think that's their mindset here. And they've played well against them in the regular season. But we all know that it's a different animal come playoff time. From my intel within the NHL, they tell me if you could hand select how a franchise gets off the ground and how it's run and the the arena experience, yeah. they would put Seattle top of the heap. And Seattle's been flying under the radar. They're like they like it that way. They they, yeah. said they, they like to be just flying out of the peripheral of everyone. Yeah. Yeah. Well, they have done it the right way. I mean, obviously, they have tremendous ownership, and uh, you know, on a day to day with uh, with Todd Lightwicky and Victor DeBonis and and the entire brass when it comes to the you know the the, the managing uh, of the business and and the day to day, and then when you have the leadership of a guy like Ron Francis, who is arguably one of the greatest players ever to play in the National Hockey League. And then you look what he did in Carolina. I mean, he helped build that team to what it is and has been the last couple of years before, uh, you know, for some reason he was shown the door in Carolina and, and Seattle came a call in. And, uh, and this was, you know, a win-win by, by getting Ronnie there. And, and you see what he's done and, you know, the slow process. And look, last year, yeah, I mean, it was a tough season. But, you know, I think it was probably – unfair expectations Dan when you know Seattle comes in a league and everybody just assumed oh well if Vegas did it uh which you know I don't think we'll ever we're, we will ever see again and I know ever is a long time um the way they went to the Stanley Cup final in their first year for Seattle you know I mean coming out of COVID you know just just a lot of things went on and you know they had a boatload of injuries and you know they just didn't have a good year but hey you know that's the reality of it but Ronnie made some moves in the summer, made some moves over the course of the regular season. They got healthy. There was a great belief, and all of a sudden they had a 100-point season, a 40-point turnaround, as I mentioned a little bit earlier. So they do everything um, extremely uh, first class. Uh, you know, there's, there's great understanding is that they do have to build from the grassroots. I mean, Seattle does have a long history of hockey, but uh, the Kraken, uh, you know, in, in the competitive business, the entertainment world and, and competing against the Seahawks and competing against the Mariners second year, you know, needed an improvement. They obviously got that. And, uh, but it is, uh, the building is, is beautiful. Uh, the fan base has been uh, there every single night and it's an extremely loud building. And I can't imagine what it's going to be at light, uh, what it's going to be like on Saturday for game three uh, at home for the first playoff game in crack in history. So, it's been uh, everything. Everything is done extremely well, and as a former player and as a coach and somebody that's been breathing the National Hockey League since 1984, when you look at how they do things and and the way that they treat uh, their employees, the way they treat their customers, the way that they treat uh, everybody involved within the you know the community and the partners that they have on the corporate side, and of course their ownership. 
Um, that is a template for the way that you do things. Doesn't mean you're going to win. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean you're going to, you know, like you're going to be one of the top teams in the league. But there's a way about going and, and, and starting from the grassroots. And uh, they've done a hell of a job there. And uh, it's been a lot of fun to be a part of it, a uh, very small part of it uh, in their second year. You mentioned the arena. And I see pictures of it. And it is something I can't even wrap my head around. Now, you've been in every old rink in the NHL. You've been in every yeah, new yeah. rink in the NHL. Is this the most unique arena? And can you describe it? Because from what I can see, at street level, there's barely anything poking up above the street level. And then yeah. it's built about 30 stories into the ground. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's how they wanted to preserve the uh, the roof and be able to... Uh, you know, have the history uh, of Seattle and then be able to dig down deep and put the rink, put Climate Pledge Arena down into the ground. How many and, stories down is it? Uh, that's a good question. I wouldn't want to, I wouldn't want to guess on okay. how many it is, but uh, when you look at like where we are at the top of the arena and we look out down towards street level, like street level probably matches up with the two scoreboards they have hanging over the arena. So, you know, is it 200, 300 feet down into the ground when you start talking about where they were originally? Probably at least that much. So, um, I, I, you know, I'm sure you could probably get on that World Wide Web thing and, and, and read all about it. But it's a uh, it's a uh, it's a very new building. It feels new, obviously. And uh, there's a lot of history there and it gets, you know, it gets very loud. And, and that's something that uh, I think uh, everybody in Seattle really enjoys when uh, the Kraken are playing and going well, as that building has the ability to go ahead and start uh, start rocking in there. Eddie, you, uh, you started in 84 in the NHL. Now, I was looking back at your hockey DB last night. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you played in the most unique time period from 84 all the way to 2000, you saw the NHL grow up and I, am I wrong here? You saw it become a major part of pro sports. Yeah. I mean, I said, I don't, you know what, Dan, when I came in and like, I was a Chicago kid, I lived and died with the Blackhawks and a huge fan and uh, still am. Um, you know, and I got a chance to play, you know, I get drafted by my hometown team and in Chicago in, in 84 for three years. And, um, I, you know, I don't think I, I knew anything other than is that, you know, the National Hockey League to me was the greatest league in the world when I was a kid. And it was the greatest league when I got there. And it's still the greatest league now after all these years of coaching and broadcasting and, and what have you. But, you know, I mean, seeing seeing the change. Um, seeing the like it grew up know, really yeah 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 no no that that's very fair I, I think when when you look at it in, in that time frame like we had just come out of the 70s and and then you know and the broad street bullies and then the islanders went on their run and then the oilers went on their run and you know still living off the history of some of those canadian teams you know that that made those runs and um but I think that the game, as, as I got older in the game, I think I could just feel that the younger player was getting into better shape. It was getting into better condition. It was getting faster. Um, you know, intimidation is and always still will be a part 
of the National Hockey League. We saw it in game one in Dallas, Minnesota, with that unbelievable physical hit with Matt Dumba and Joel Pavelski. Like that, that, I mean, that is always going to be a part of, of, of playoff hockey. And, and I think when I came in, in, in 84, 85, it was, uh, you know, be seen, not heard, look and see how veteran guys, you know, go about their business. And, you know, has the player changed, you know, probably in the last 10 years to maybe in my era and then maybe through the two, you know, that 2000 year when I retired? Yeah, I think so. You know, do I think money has something to do with that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when I came into the National Hockey League, it's just the reality. I signed a four year contract my first year in 84. And, you know, I, I was pulling in 75, 85, 95 and 105 grand for the first four years that I was playing. The guys that came before me, Dan, as you know, were probably making 45, 50, 55, 60, 65. That's just, you know, that that's just sports. That's just entertainment. So I think the, the player, the talent, the skill level, I think it has a lot of similarities. I think there are a lot of connections because I, I believe is that the Wayne Gretzky's and, and Mario Lemieux's and, you know, the Yarmir Yagers, the Dennis Savard's. I mean, I, I believe that those guys would be doing damage as much as Connor McDavid and Leon Dreisaitl are today. Like, I, I really I really believe that. I, when you look at the rule changes, like, I, I'd hate – like a, I believe Wayne Gretzky is the greatest goal scorer the National Hockey League has ever seen. If Wayne Gretzky wanted to score – 1200 goals when he was playing he could have done that i mean like you know like and, and i and i see what Connor mcdavid did this year and i think that he said this year is like you know what i'm gonna score more and i'm gonna go out there and nobody's gonna stop me and i'm gonna be able to lead the league in in goals so you know the game did change a lot from 84 to 2000 um, but i think when you look at it now with the you know the way the rule changes have happened and the condition of these athletes of today um, the speed that they're able to make plays and, and do the things that they're able to do. Uh, I think the game's in an unbelievable place. And uh, so, yeah, I did a lot of growing up mm -hmm. and seen a lot of things and uh, very proud to have been a very small part of the National Hockey League for all these years. Two of the biggest things that have changed and they happened while you were playing was the ability for anyone to just freeze the puck against the boards with their skate and get a whistle. Sure. Yeah. And also the goalies, when they attempted to stop it with their leg, but it was the side of their leg, the kick save with the side of your pad. <laughs> I never understood that. And I was a goalie and I did it too. I look back, I'm like, what were you thinking? Yeah. Well, well, obviously, uh, you know, stylistically things have changed, you know, over the years and, you know, talking about, you know, you know, the clutching and grabbing and, you know, slowing the game down. And if you got a two, one lead, it, you know, back in the day, there was a pretty good chance that team would, you know, the analytics I'm sure today uh, back then would tell you is that that team had a hell of a chance of going ahead and shutting it down and and not giving the other team an opportunity. And look, slowing part, slowing the game down is part of that of, you know, playing the puck along the boards and freezing it. And, you know, nowadays they're saying, you know, we're not going to allow it and they let it go. And I think that's obviously a great thing. But, you know, the, the equipment is in all sports. I mean, look at golf. I mean, golf is you know, the, the equipment in golf has, has allowed these, you know, these athletes and, and um, you know, their condition and the way that they train 
to be able to, you know, put the ball down the fairway 330 yards without even, you know, bat an eyelash just because the equipment is better. The ball is probably travels a little bit better, um, you know, the way that they're in condition. And it's no different in hockey for especially for for goaltenders where the equipment is way better now. It's probably doesn't absorb as much water and sweat as it used to back in the day. Uh, you got aerodynamic, you know, masks, you got pads, you got, I mean, just every, everything that goes with it. The sticks are way lighter, not only for the goalies, but for the shooters. So yeah, you're right. There's, uh, the technique is, 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 is a lot different. A lot of goaltenders now live on their knees and, and play the, you know, they play the analytics, they play the percentages that, you know, a guy isn't going to be able to beat me in this certain area from this certain distance on the ice. And it's all about angles. So that's how the game has changed. But it is nice to see some of those uh, those old videos. And in, in, in when I show my kids or they pull out a tape and tell me how slow I was and how slow the game was, I go, well, you know what? Yeah, you had to have a lot of balls to play back in 1984 to 2000. I said the game was a, the game was way tougher back then than it is now. I'm not looking at the game is very physical and it's very tough, but it was a much different game back then. Uh, but to see how the goaltenders play and and stylistically and you know for the most part everybody using a wood stick back in the uh, you know back in the 80s uh those are the good old days Dan and I'll always live off of those memories for sure you mentioned the goalie equipment you played with two of the goalies that uh I idolized growing up because of their equipment Murray Bannerman in Chicago <laughs> because of his mask and Ken yeah. Reggett sure he had the helmet with a loose fitting cage yeah. it fell yeah. off five times a game yeah yeah, yeah, and uh, you know what? The referees. Uh, let, let's uh, let's do a little hockey one hundred and one here. Is okay. that uh, people? Uh, there seems to be. Uh, there has been. I guess I should say is that uh, that if a goaltender loses his mask in a play, is that it's an automatic whistle. That is not the rule. It is not an automatic uh, whistle if a goaltender loses his mask. Uh, it is under the. Uh, you know, the feel of the official that if there is a uh, scoring chance that is imminent is that he will let that play continue. And then, you know, and then he can blow the whistle on his judgment. Now, if a goaltender is obviously down and, you know, in distress, like the referee at any time can blow the whistle regardless of the situation, but you're right. Kenny, uh, Kenny had that ability to, uh, um, to either shake it off or get it knocked off. And if I could tell you a quick story, we were playing, uh, I was playing with the Leafs and we were playing with Kenny and we were in Detroit. Um, and for some reason, uh, the puck had exited the zone, the defensive zone, our zone, the Leafs zone. And I happened to be the last guy coming up the ice. And the puck is probably around the far blue line in, at the Joe. And all of a sudden, the crowd is just going crazy. And I'm like looking in front of me, and I'm like, either there's a fight in the stands or there's something going on behind me. And I turn and I look, and all of a sudden, I see in the corner Kenny Reggett and Bob Probert, the late, great Bob Probert, former teammate of mine late in his career in Chicago. And I see Proby and Kenny fighting in the corner. <laughs> <laughs> and my first thought is, is like, 
oh my gosh, I'm the closest guy. I got to get in there and try to grab Proby and get him out, you know, because that's, you know, you just, you don't allow that, right, when that happens. So I go skating back there and uh, I grab Proby and Proby lets Kenny go, you know, and I think he realizes who it is. And I'm just telling you, and I grabbed on for dear life. I think I punched him in the, I punched him in the thighs a couple of times. I wrestled with him. Good old thigh shot. Yeah, yeah, he pounded me in the back of the head a couple of times. But all I know is that the next day in the paper, Probert, old check, five minutes for fighting. That, that's all I know is that I got in there and did what I did. Now, I know there's a YouTube clip out there is that the, the great Mickey Redman, who is still doing games with the Kenny Daniels in Detroit uh, for Bally Sports. And uh, Mickey was doing the game, and he was describing it as, and I'm paraphrasing, as he said, uh, Oh, there's Olchek. What is he doing? He he shouldn't. He doesn't want any of that. I'm like, yeah, I know. I don't want any of that. I mean, I, you know, like I knew, I knew this was like a mismatch from you know when, and uh, but uh, I had to do what I had to do. So in a roundabout way, there with Kenny Reggett, no no helmet on, uh, chin strap very loose. There was Proby going at him, and I had to jump in there and try to separate him. And uh, like I said. Uh, one of my prouder fights, even though I did a lot of receiving, uh, myself and Proby got five minutes for, he got five minutes for fighting. I got five for receiving. <laughs> How many fights did you have? Um, I'm going to say probably, I'm going to say probably North of 15, maybe okay. probably, yeah, probably 16, 17. I had a couple, yeah, I had a couple, uh, I had a couple good ones. I had one in the playoffs against. Edmonton, I can't even remember who I fought. I fought Lee Norwood a couple of times over the years. He seemed to always want to either break my back or my wrist or whatever. So, I, you know, I fought him one time, I think. So a couple of times. Um, but, yeah, I, I think I fought. I might I fought. I might have fought. I was going to say Craig Muni, but I think that might have been a little bit later. But anyways, back back in like the 84, 85 time. With Edmonton, had a couple. I think I had a scrap in the playoffs one year. But, yeah, nothing. I'd like to say I won them all, but, uh, you know, I'm sure I did a lot of receiving too. And you also played on Winnipeg when I'm pretty sure the whiteout made sense because teams still wore their home whites. Yeah. And from what I was told was they changed it because teams wore their home whites at home because they your, your jerseys get dirty on the road. So you'd wear your your dark jerseys on the road, so it hide the dirt and the the scuff marks better. And they changed it because of I don't know new technology or something. But I wish they went back to the home whites. I don't know why they ever changed it. I mean, I, that's what I grew up with. Yeah. So I, you know, I didn't know. You know, I, I always thought it was kind of initially it was a little different, and then you get the third sweaters in, and you know, again, I mean, all about marketing, all about. Uh, you know, selling the brand and, and what have you. But uh, those white Blackhawk sweaters uh, that I grew up uh, watching and then getting a chance to put on for the first time. Uh, you know, I played my played my first game as a Blackhawk in 84. I played my thousandth game in 99, 98-99 season as a Blackhawk. And then I played my last game as a Blackhawk. And then in that last game, Dan, I was able to wear four different sweaters. I wore one in warmups. I wore one for the first period. I wore one for the second period. And I wore one for the third period. And having uh, four kids, uh, 
it worked out and has worked out very well. Now I have two grandkids, so I got to figure out how I'm going to uh, how I'm going to do all that kind of stuff, passing down in in history. But uh, you know, I mean, I, I I think I've gotten used to the you know the darker colored sweaters at, at home, and um, but uh, I guess we're showing our uh, we're showing our stripes and and uh, our uh, our era, so to speak, of uh, you know the home whites at home. What is your favorite? Of all your old jerseys that you have now, what's your favorite one where you see it and you're like, that was a great jersey? Wow. I mean, like, you know, my first one, obviously, you know, my rookie year in Chicago, my, you know, growing up and like I said, living and dying with the Hawks and always dreaming what it would be like to, you know, to wear that sweater. You know, anytime I see my Ranger sweater, uh, you know, the 94, the year we won the Stanley Cup is obviously brings back, uh, you know, unbelievable memories. Uh, my Olympic sweater uh, that I wore in 1984 with Team USA. Um, but I was looking, I was very, very lucky that I was able to wear some really iconic and just really uh, just some great sweaters in the league, you know, whether it was from, you know, Chicago to Toronto to Winnipeg to the Rangers uh, you know, out to LA for a quick little cup of coffee where I got to wear the purple and gold a couple of nights and then, you know, getting a chance to, uh, you know, to, to, you know, to be in Pittsburgh and then eventually end up back in Chicago. So I very, very lucky, you know, you know, it was underrated. The underrated sweaters were, I thought the, the aways back in my day, the away blues, the originals in Toronto and Winnipeg, like those were, those were pretty sweet. And uh, and they were and of, you were in the baggy jersey memories. era, right? You were in the very loose fitting jersey era. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. No arrow, yeah, no aerodynamics. <laughs> so that that should have been my uh, my negotiating tactic. There is saying, look, you know, I'd be a lot fat. You're telling me I'm not very quick, but I'd be a lot faster if you get me an arrow. Yeah, you guys were like sailboats <laughs> going down the ice. <laughs> yeah, I mean, look at the the skates were after a game, Dan. I remember sometimes you take your skates off and like it'd be like you wear it in a rainstorm and it like, you just pour out the skate and like water would come like flying out or you're like, you didn't know any better because everybody else, you know, I mean, all the skates were the same. And then I remember, gosh, I'm trying to think where I was. Maybe it could have been in New York. So again, this was early nineties where the trainer started drilling holes in the bottom of the skates smart like and i'm like wow i mean you know like the water just to you know to to leak out of there so you didn't you weren't carrying that around you know and then obviously eventually the skates have changed and you know the the rest is history now but yeah i thought that that was uh you know i thought that was pretty uh i thought that was pretty cool back in the day we didn't and the other thing too is now you see players have five and six set of gloves during a game uh, where they're always flipping their gloves because they got the dryers and whatever in behind the, uh, you know, the blow dryers there for their gloves. Where back in the day, if you were going to blow dry your gloves, you had to get a hair dryer, yep. <laughs> and you had to you had to angle it in a perfect way where it wouldn't burn out because then the next guy wouldn't be able to to use it. So, uh, yeah, the, the the game has changed quite a bit, and obviously for the better. But uh, it's nice to tell when I tell young players now about you know, the sticks and the, the skates and you had to take your skates off to get sharpened. If you blew, a, if you, you have to sit there for 
four or five minutes. In some buildings, your locker room was on the other side and a trainer couldn't get back. So you'd miss six, seven minutes of a game where now they just, they pit stop, right? They lift their leg up. The trainer takes the blade out, pops it out, pops it in. The guy never misses a beat. So very efficient now where players today shake their head and go, how, how in hell, you know, how in hell did you guys do it? And I said, well, we were lucky because the guys that came before us had it even worse. Oh, yeah. And you mentioned the horse hair pads uh, earlier, the goal equipment. Don't get me started. I had to, I, I got nowhere near the NHL, but I had to deal with that in hockey and it was enough for me. Uh, my good buddy, Steve Webb, I mentioned um, that yeah. you were coming on here with me and Webby played for the Kentucky Thoroughblades back in 96, yeah. 97 to this day. He still talks about the parties in the week leading up to the Kentucky Derby. And he said, ask Eddie if he ever goes to any of those, because those were the great that he said, he still says like that was the greatest week of his life going to those parties. Yeah. yeah I mean, look at, I've been very lucky, uh, you know, being a part of NBC's uh, hockey coverage for, I guess, almost 16 years. And then got the opportunity to be a part of the, uh, the, der uh, the Derby coverage in 16 and 2016. And I'll be going back this year and, and looking forward to handicapping and, and being a part of Derby week. Uh, my first year, I, uh, I had a good time and uh, I experienced everything. And then I realized tough to do when you're working Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and you're trying to pick winners on national television. Yeah. So, um, but it is, uh, it is a bucket list. And look, you don't, you don't even have to, you know, you don't have to know anything about horse racing or handicapping or gambling or whatever. Like if it's, it's a to do thing for sure. The bucket list, you want to scratch it off. And it, Louisville's it's a great town. They, it, you know, they do a, an amazing job. There are parties everywhere. Uh, you know, you can, you know, you can dress in shorts and flip flops or you can, you know, go, dress to the nines and and uh, and really enjoy yourself so yeah it's it's one of those weeks where um, you see a little bit of everything and when you're doing television you get to observe a little bit more and sometimes people are served a little bit too much and you know can't handle that but for the most part everybody really enjoys the experience and the celebration and getting together and uh, but it's a it's a lot of fun and uh Webby's right. He, uh, you know, I'm sure, you know, he, he could, you know, say now that uh, back in the day, day, he had, um, he had himself a hell of an opportunity there when he was playing there. And uh, it's a lot of fun Derby week. And I'm looking forward to getting there and work, being part of NBC's coverage this year as well. He still doesn't even understand how he got into the parties playing for <laughs> like you're playing for the thoroughblades it's not like uh those are big credentials yeah, it's not like yeah yeah it's not like you you, you have a, a horse running in the uh, <laughs> you know running in the, the oaks day on friday or the eventual derby day on saturday but um you know you, 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 everybody's got to have a guy and i'm sure back then the thoroughblades had a guy or you know an equine athlete that could get him in the door and once you get in the door then you got to then you got to make the best of it. Yeah, you go visit Webby in New York, and he's got a guy like every course. You're like, oh, that's private only. He goes, like, eh, we'll get on there. I'm like, yeah, yeah, well, yeah. What kind of world okay, is thank this? You. Yeah, yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> Eddie, you're the best, buddy, and I wanted to say congrats. Uh, you are cancer free, my friend. That makes me so happy. Well, thank you, Dan. Yeah, I, uh, I can't believe I hit my five year, uh, my five year mile marker. Uh, about a month ago, and uh, I, 
I don't know why I made it. I had an unbelievable team of doctors, an unbelievable support staff at home led, led by my wife, Diana, of uh, coming up on 35 years and uh, friends in the hockey world and the horse racing industry. Um, I just, uh, just very lucky. Uh, and my, my wife's goal and, and my goal now is to try to help and inspire people that are either in the battle, uh, that, uh, that are going to be in the battle or, you know, caretakers and caregivers is that, you know, we have to make sure we're looking out after them because Dan, when I was going through it, my wife, uh, I never saw her down. I never saw her weak. I never saw her worried around me. Now I know that I'm sure she let her guard down away from me and was scared and, you know, maybe didn't have anywhere to turn. So I think it's important that we not only look after the people that are in the battle, it doesn't have to be, it could be anything and not just cancer, but then we also have to make sure is that we're looking out after uh, the people, the caretakers and caregivers and asking them, Hey, how are you doing? Um, you know, can, you know, can I, uh, can I take you to lunch? You know, can I take your mind away from your loved one that is in the battle? And uh, so I, I've been very lucky. I've been blessed. Unfortunately, you know, we've lost a lot of, we've lost a, lost a lot of hockey people here to cancer recently in the last handful of years. Uh, some friends, some family friends. And uh, the one thing that I, I wish I would have known when I wrote my book, Dan, a couple of years ago and talk a lot about my battle, but um, is dealing with survivor's guilt. Uh, and that's something that is very real. It is something that is very heavy and uh, that I battle with every single day. But uh, what I hope is, is that people that maybe know me or know my story is that uh, they could say, hey, if that old broken down hockey player and horse player can do it, well, then you know what? Then I can too, because when you are diagnosed with that disease is that it does test your will to live. And there were many times where... I didn't know how I was going to get through the day, let alone get through the next uh, six months of treatment. So um, I appreciate you having me on. It's great to catch up. And uh, uh, I hope that uh, everybody enjoys these playoffs this year in the National Hockey League and uh, should be a lot of fun. And uh, looking, uh, looking forward to seeing if the Bruins can continue what they did in the regular season, because as you know, it was an unbelievable run. So I appreciate you having me, Dan. Thanks a lot. Eddie, all I can say is whatever you're doing, keep doing it. You don't seem to age. So, <laughs> so keep at that's it. What, my hey, that's what shoe polish is for. So <laughs> good to talk to you. Eddie. Murray Bannerman. If you don't know who Murray Bannerman is, Google that Google image. That mask is in the hockey hall of fame. Pretty sure. If you don't know who Ken Reggett is, Google that and look up on YouTube, Ken Reggett's save against St. Louis. I believe he stopped Gino Cavallini with the greatest glove save in the history of the world. Bob Cole was on the call. I watched that a million times, had it on a VHS tape. Rewind that baby. Let's watch it again. Rewind that baby. Let's watch it again. So thanks to Eddie Olchek for uh, joining us. Thank you for joining us and being part of the Boomsies community. See you next week. Welcome to Boomsies with Dan O'Toozie. 
Fly from Orno in the heart of Ontario. Oh, baby, Boomsy. Thanks for listening to Boomsies with Dan O'Toole on the Bet Rivers Network.